This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 24, The Mastermind. The elderly woman walked along the crowded streets. It was a gorgeous summer day in Seattle, but she felt alone, perusing the street fair, looking. What she was searching for, she didn't quite know, but it felt good to be in the company of other people. It was tangential, of course, they were all strangers, but their stories as she watched them walking past felt like familiar territory. As a retired school teacher, she'd walked similar lives at one time or another. The families pushing babies and toddlers and strollers, Couples who were holding hands, seemingly without a care in the world. And of course, friends enjoying a day out. The weather was perfect, but the 75-year-old felt achingly alone. Her husband had recently passed away, and somewhere along the line, she'd become estranged from her adult children. They had their own lives. But in the midst of the delicious food that was offered all around her, the crafts, music, and entertainment, Sylvia strolled on, until she saw a sign that caught her eye. Her heart quickened when she read, Palm Reader. Sylvia walked toward the booth, and that's where she locked eyes with a woman, whose gaze pulled her in like a magnet. She waved her over. The sign said $30 for a palm reading, but maybe contact with this woman might provide her with some insight into what to do next in her life. Or maybe it was just a bit of fun. And it was so easy to sit down with this middle-aged woman who would introduce herself as Lady Monica. Lady Monica couldn't have been less threatening. She had a high-pitched voice, but a gentle touch as she opened her hand and began fingering the lines of her palm. But then, something unexpected. Lady Monica's eyes widened as she deeply inhaled. Oh, this was bad. This was very, very bad. Lady Monica warned Sylvia that she had a gray aura. She was in jeopardy. But there was a man, Father Thomas, who had the power to heal Sylvia of her gray aura. But it wouldn't be cheap. She scammed everything she did in her life, you know. Everything was a scam. She never worked an honest day in her life. It is a trap. It's yeah. a trap. Yeah. yeah. They put out their bait and wait for the wait for the fish to nibble, right? That's what for they the do. the vulnerable people right. to come. To come in, right. Okay. Don't go to those places and looking for answers and certainly don't go to them if you're really down and really want to know your fortune because all you'll find is misfortune that's cloyd steiger he's a retired seattle police detective and you may remember him from episode 17 when we covered the idaho murders so cloyd you have been a homicide detective for like what how how many years talk a little bit about your background so people know that you're you have the goods Okay, well, I was uh, I was on the Seattle Police Department for 36 years. I was a detective for 26 years and a homicide detective for 22 years. After that, I went to work for the uh, State Attorney General's Office where I was a, the uh, Chief Criminal Investigator for the Homicide Investigation Tracking System. And during that time, I was uh, a board member on the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases and National Group that looks at cold cases from around the country and tries to help agencies move them forward. If you didn't catch the drift of Cloyd's vibe, let's just say he's not the touchy-feely type. How do you guys handle, is it, did you just put this wall up and just well, get you know, used to it? People what? ask me all the time, aren't you grossed out by that? And I say, I say, uh, I look at a, a torn up body with the same compassion that a mechanic looks at a broken transmission, right? It's just the job. I well, Years ago... My first homicide case I ever handled was in 1994. Norm Stamper was the chief of police, and it was a murder of a seven-year-old girl. And that was your first, my first case? First oh, case, my. yeah. Talk about being thrown into the wolves. Yeah. Oh, my well, gosh. Well, no, I, I don't know if you were around when Norm Stamper was the chief, but Norm's a touchy-feely, super PC kind of guy, and he thought anybody handled, is involved in a murder of a seven-year-old girl needs to go to counseling. So he set up this thing. And on a Saturday morning, we were supposed to go downtown and sit and talk to this counselor about You don't it. touch me as like the touchy-feely I'm type not. guy. Well, here's how it went. First of all, at Friday night, about 7, my phone rang to come back to work because the case was breaking. 
I worked all night long. By the end of the night, we had three suspects in custody and with the, for the murder. And I was tired as shit. But I had to go down to this stupid-ass meeting. So I walked in. There's a chairs in a circle. And I sit down. There's a bearded guy. He's a psychologist. And he says, how do you feel about working a case like this? And I leaned in. I said, I feel that if I have to talk to somebody like you every time something like this happens, I'm in the wrong fucking line of work. And I need to do a career change. And I got up and walked out. You can't be touchy-feely. You have to. I mean, you can have human compassion. But when you're working, you're working, right? And you know, when yeah. you go home at night, then you can relax, you know. But, you know, I, get, I have a work mode and a home mode, and they're two different people. Like yeah. I said, my home life is PG-13, but my work life is MA-17. Out of context, Cloyd's unapologetic way about how he does his job could rub some people the wrong way. But I love talking with Cloyd because when it comes to solving cases and being passionate about catching killers, getting justice for the victims and their families, you wouldn't want anyone else on the case. You couldn't ask for a more committed, shrewd, and capable detective. I mean, I, I remember going to a scene one time where a, this guy was shermed up. You know, shermed when he was smoking uh, PCP, marijuana, or, mm-hmm. or formaldehyde. And he went crazy and he, he shot his cousin to death in Rainier Beach. On the couch, he beat a, like a 13-month-old to death. He stabbed a five-year-old like 30 times in the bathtub. And I get called there. And I remember, and you go outside, and it was just, and, and then he went outside, the police were there, and he got to shoot out and got killed by the police. And it was, in the business, we call that a clusterfuck, okay? Yeah, so I think it we is. get called up, yeah, everywhere. And, and when I get there, I mean, there's helicopters in the air. There's hundreds of TV cameras everywhere. It's a beautiful summer afternoon. And Kurlikowski, Gil Kurlikowski was the chief of police, and he's surrounded by all these cameras talking to talking to the media and I walk past to come to, walk under uh, yellow tape and walk into the house and close the door and it was silent right it's like it's so quiet in there and I'm looking at all this the little girl was transported away she actually ended up surviving the five-year-old the 18 uh, 13 month old is the body's there dead I looked at that body and went I said Jesus Christ you know let the and then, boop, back up now I'm in work note again <laughs> and that was it it so we just did it. That's the way you got to be. You got to have, yeah. this is business. You can't, I also tell people, if I'm crying and all upset over everything I see, I'm not doing the victim or his family any good. I'm just wasting space because you got to be meticulous and think about this case, right? And think about what you need to do to get the job done and get the fucker in the end, right? That's the way it works. I love that. <laughs> Before we get started, I want to address something that's really important. You'll hear the word gypsy. Now, gypsy in the past was commonly used to describe the Romani people, but many people who identify as ethnically Roma or Romani are offended by the term gypsy. And given the persecution of the Roma people for generations, it's understandable why it's considered an ethnic slur. It's a painful word associated with prejudice and stereotypes. During this investigation, Cloyd would work extensively with Roma people who really played a huge part in helping him solve this case, and they would help him understand the Roma culture. You know, there's the, the, the people that I got in touch with, that I hate to call informants, but they really were uh, from the gypsy community, they said that Roma is the culture and gypsy is the criminal element of that culture. And so that's mm-hmm. the difference. So, and these people consider themselves Roma, not Gypsy. But they have, you know, their, their own language. It's not written. And, and it's an organization, hierarchies. It's almost like the mafia. They give each other names, like mafia names, like Fat Eddie and this, that. I learned a lot about, about that culture while I was working this case from talking to these guys. So I still talk to, you know, oh, one of them. One of them died. But, but I, so oh, he was old, yeah. Sylvia Sutton was in a vulnerable place. Her husband had recently passed away, and she was lonely. Sylvia was at a street fair in Seattle's International District Chinatown in the summer of 2007 when she met Lady Monica. Sylvia had uh, lost her life partner recently and was very depressed. It was down in Chinatown at a street fair and came across a palm reading booth. And that's where she met Brenda, who she knew as Lady Monica, who read her palm and said, oh, I see a lot of trouble. You have a dark aura, but I can fix it. I have a friend named Father Thomas, but it takes money. And then, of course, she's kind of wormed her way into Sylvia's life and and worked its way through. Then 42-year-old Lady Monica, who was really Brenda Nicholas, was well-practiced in manipulation. She would introduce Sylvia to Father Thomas, who would help cleanse her of her gray aura. But there would be a price to be paid. 
and Lady Monica would have Sylvia make frequent withdrawals from her accounts. Sylvia had become estranged from her children. On top of that, Lady Monica was feeding her drugs. And then got to, to the point where when she said, here, take this, it'll relax you, and she'd give her a pill all the time. And, and well, one of my people I talked to in the Roma community, somebody, well, she's drugging her because they have access to pharmacies. They can get that stuff. And so she, Sylvia was in such a daze that she was giving, she gave her over a million bucks, like 1.35 million. How, what was the timeline between over about like, was a, year. a year? Yeah. We still don't know exactly what kind of pills that Brenda was giving Sylvia. But she would later describe to police that these pills put her in a daze. She felt loopy and compliant. Add to that Lady Monica's manipulation, and it wasn't long before she was completely under the coercive control of Lady Monica. Between September 14, 2007 and April 27, 2009, Brenda Nicholas withdrew more than a million dollars from Sylvia's accounts. In a drug-fueled haze, Sylvia believed that Lady Monica was using her money to take care of her and that Father Thomas and his healing powers would cure her gray aura. During this time, Brenda moved Sylvia to different residences every few months. She never let her stay long in one place. One of these temporary homes was located in the Bitter Lake neighborhood of Seattle, a large senior housing complex called the Four Freedoms. In the spring of 2011, Sylvia became friends with a fellow resident. His name was Francis Patrick Fleming. Sylvia would go on to introduce Patrick to Lady Monica, who always kept close tabs on her. Patrick Fleming was a 70-year-old Navy veteran who had earned two Purple Hearts and a Bronze Star for his service. And Patrick was really proud of his coin collection. It was the pride of his life. So Lady Monica regularly visited Sylvia at the Four Freedoms, and she struck up enough conversations with Patrick that he felt comfortable showing her his rare coin collection. He even showed her where he kept them in his apartment. Patrick believed he was having fun sharing his passions. But Lady Monica had dollar signs in her eyes. From the moment that she saw those coins, she plotted how she was going to kill Patrick Fleming. But Lady Monica knew the timing wasn't right, especially after one of her cons went south. Apparently, she had borrowed some money from an elderly man to the tune of thousands of dollars. When he wasn't repaid, he realized he'd been conned, so he contacted the police. Brenda knew it was time to move Sylvia out of the Four Freedoms, to keep her away from the cops, but also to put some distance between herself and Patrick Fleming at the Four Freedoms. But in her mind, she was still plotting his murder, because she was desperate for money, even though she had wiped out Sylvia's life savings of more than $1.3 million, she was broke again. First of all, she was blowing it on coach purses and trips to Las Vegas. And, and uh, Archie, her husband, had a drug problem when they were buying drugs with it. And they they lived, they made, they had that money. Well, first of all, in this story, there's she, Sylvia's not the only one that lost over a million dollars. <laughs> but she was sleeping on a mat in the floor of this, uh, of this uh, palm reading place up on Stone Way. Because that's where she went. Sylvia? No, Who's no. The, or, no. Or Brenda. Brenda and everyone in their family were sleeping on mats on the floor in a commercial, excuse me, this commercial palm rating place up on Stone Way. Because they would just piss the money away every dime they got. Doesn't that seem incredible? It does seem A incredible. million, a right. 1.3 yeah. in a year's time? Right. And so, yeah, and this story has so many twists and turns. Lady Monica needed money fast. She knew that the resale value of Patrick's coin collection was in the neighborhood of $60,000. After pining over Patrick Fleming's coins for months, Lady Monica was ready to get her hands on that collection at long last. Lady Monica was confident in whatever plan that she hatched, she knew would be carried out with the help of two lemmings. 51-year-old Charles Youngbluth, who drove a taxi and was in love with Brenda. She just apparently knew the right things to say to the right people. Of course, the guy she, like Charles, he would drive her around all hours of day and night and get nothing for it except gas money. Yeah, nothing. Before the crime. And just the stuff he, she just used him because she'd just do whatever. I need you to take me here. I need you to take me there. If she went to a restaurant, he'd have to sit at a different table. Lady Monica's other stooge would be 49-year-old Gilda Ramirez. By then, Gilda was already a victim of Lady Monica too. Gilda Ramirez, who... 40-ish, she was, a 40-ish Colombian woman, Colombian immigrant. 
And I sat down and she goes, let me tell you my story. She, I was working as an architect in New York and, and I lived in Queens and I was, I, I had a baby and my boyfriend left me and I was very depressed. I was on the street and this woman comes up to me and says, are you okay? You look sad. And he told, she said, yeah, I'm really sad. And she goes, I, you know, I'm, I'm a palm reader and I can see you have a dark aura. I, I can clean your aura. And she said, and I'm from Columbia in our culture, we believe that. And so she said Father Thomas would help her and all the same story. And so this lady, Gilda, started giving her money, money over a period of about a year. She mortgaged her parents' house, gave her all that money. She was borrowing money from people at work and she finally got fired from her job and she had given her over a million dollars also. In what time period? Again, nine months, a year. And so she would talk to Brenda, who she didn't know was Brenda at the time. She was Lady Monica also, on the phone. And and at one point she called her and Brenda said, well, I've moved to Seattle. Why don't you come out here? And Father Thomas is here and we'll work with you in person. And she said, okay. So she went, she said, I went to Seattle and I became her indentured slave and I did everything for her. I just lived in her house, cooked, cleaned, everything. And I was so, it was kind of like a Patty Hearst thing. Because she got so, when, when, when Gilda came to, I mean, when uh, Brenda came to her and said, We need to go kill this guy and take a coin. She said, okay. (laughs) Both Gilda and Charles would be willing to do whatever Lady Monica told them to. The night of December 8th, 2011, Brenda, Gilda, and Charles went to the thrift store to buy costumes and a set of kitchen knives. The plan was to murder Patrick Fleming and steal his coin collection. But they made a pit stop first, there was another vulnerable senior that Lady Monica had set her sights on. That they'd gone to another elderly man's house before this in Sandpoint. And when they knocked on the door, they had this scam where Brenda would knock, I mean, uh, Gilda would knock on the door and say, hey, I moved in next door. Can I use your phone to order cable TV? And the guy, you know, no, because everybody has cell phones, right? They wouldn't let him in. And she tried to force away and he goes, I got a gun. So they all turned and ran and got, this guy they'd met at a nursing home. When Sylvia was in the nursing home, she hurt herself. <laughs> and he had a lot of money too. And he lived in a nice place in Sandpoint. That was the first place. Then they went over to Four Freedoms that same night. The trio, wearing their homemade disguises, drove to the Four Freedoms senior housing complex. Remember, Lady Monica was totally familiar with the layout of the complex. It was just after 9 p.m. when they arrived. Lady Monica, Gilda, and Charles were dressed like something out of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They had kitchen knives, like butcher knives they bought at Goodwill. They dressed in costumes. They actually went to, because people at the place said, there were these three women sitting out in the sitting area by the elevator, and they looked really out of place, and they were all dressed like like they thought they were fancy, but it was just like garish, you know? And that, they were all dressed up, waiting for everybody to leave so they could go to the apartment. When Lady Monica felt it was safe, they went to Patrick's unit, armed with those kitchen knives. They knocked on his door. Patrick opens his door, instantly regretting the decision. The three pushed the door open in a blitz attack, knocking Patrick to the ground. Patrick wouldn't go quietly. He began fighting them off, but he was no match for Lady Monica and Charles, who began repeatedly stabbing him as he cried out in terror and pain, fighting for his life. This war hero being stabbed to death over and over and over again for his coin collection. Gilda ran to the bathroom, She just couldn't be a part of what was happening. But the other two were unfazed, and they continued stabbing. But he wouldn't die, and he kept screaming. Lady Monica and Charles stuck their knives into Patrick Fleming's throat until he stopped moving. Lady Monica shouted for Gilda to get out of the bathroom, and they all ransacked the apartment, stuffing Patrick's coin collection into two duffel bags, then fled the apartment. A short time after the murder, a close friend of Patrick's, Rosemary, who was also a resident at the Four Freedoms, called him. She'd forgotten her orange juice in his apartment. Earlier, she spent the evening watching TV with Patrick. And when he didn't answer his phone, she came back to his apartment. The person who found him was Rosemary Garnett, who was uh, another resident and apparently his girlfriend. And so she was pointed out to me and I went and interviewed her. And she told me about their evening, how they'd been there um, for quite a while. 
and had gone out that day and then were watching TV in his apartment, but she had to go back to her apartment, which is on the same floor, but on the op- in a different wing of the building. And she walked down there, she had to take some medication, and then she realized she'd left her orange juice in his refrigerator. So she called him up at first, she was gonna ask him if he could walk it down to her, but he didn't answer his phone, which we thought was odd. She thought was odd. And this is only 15, 20 minutes after she left the apartment. And so she waited and eventually she walked back to his apartment and when she got there, she saw the door was ajar, which was really unusual because he was very self-conscious about locking his apartment. And she knocked on the door and, and it opened up and she called out to him. When she opened the door, she saw him on the floor with the blood. And so she, she screamed and ran across the hall to the next apartment counter and wanted somebody to call the police, but nobody answered the door. So she ran back to her apartment and called 911. Fire and medical. What are you reporting? I'm reporting a man lying on the floor covered in blood. It looks like he's dead. Okay, how old is he? 70. Stand by, ma'am. Calm down. We'll be back after a quick break. Not long after that 911 call came in, Cloyd was racing to the scene. I was next up for a murder when it happened, so I was at home. I think it was a Thursday evening when I got the phone call that there was a homicide at the address up in uh, Bitter Lake. When I got to the scene, it was uh, dark, obviously. It was in December, I think December 11th of that year. A couple patrol cars outside, went into the elevator up to the seventh floor where there were many more patrol officers and there were some detectives who were working night shift in the office that were already there interviewing witnesses. Uh, The hallway was taped off. So I walked down the hallway uh, to the, basically what was going on. I walked down the hallway to the door and opened it up and stood there and just looked inside the apartment. And I saw the victim, Patrick Fleming, laying on the floor and just observed his room from the doorway. I didn't go in. And, And then I started interviewing potential witnesses. But it was clear that Patrick Fleming had fought with everything he had. When we first saw it, we, it was reported to us that he had been bludgeoned to death. So I thought, looking for the room, he had been bludgeoned to death. I didn't know he'd been stabbed until the medical examiner got there, because that was the first time we actually went up and closely examined the body was when the medical examiner arrived. So initially, he was, he was uh, pretty bloody. There was a lot of blood on the floor, blood around the room. And uh, he had vicious wounds to his throat uh, near the point of decapitation and several other superficial stab wounds in his abdomen and chest. But he was just, it was a violent, violent death. Cloyd discusses breaking down the crime scene and what he was thinking as he looked around the apartment. Clearly the place had been ransacked, but as they looked beyond the tossed belongings that were strewn about, it was clear that the killer had been looking for something. But if the motive was burglary, why was there evidence that Patrick Fleming had been tortured, too? Doesn't that make you feel like it was really personal? It wouldn't be necessarily a burglary, that would be your first thought, but it would be, you know, somebody that you that the, the victim knew. Well, usually, I mean, obviously there's a lot of passion in those cases, but those usually involve attacks to the face rather than the neck. So I didn't really think it was personal. Usually when you have a bunch of stab wounds in the face or gunshot wounds in the face, that's a, that's a personal sign, a signature. But these were these were very violent and, like I said, near the point of decapitation for, for his throat wounds, uh, which, which meant a lot of passion and violence. But it, I, I didn't have the feeling that necessarily knew. That wasn't my impression when I, when I was looking at his wounds. But it was clear as detectives looked through Patrick's apartment that he was tidy and organization was important to him. Patrick Fleming was a uh, swift boat, a swift boat in Vietnam, and he earned a Bronze Star and two Purple Hearts, which were incidentally stolen in this uh, crime and never recovered. But he, had, you know, and he had been shot up a couple times and suffered from PTSD because his house was in immaculate condition as far as. All these shirts were lined up by shade of color. He had like 10 pairs of big shiny shoes laying on the floor, all in line, and everything was was in order, except for where you could see that that place was ransacked and uh, and doors were opened and dumped out. And his coin collection, which was the pride of his life, was missing coin and uh, uncut currency. He, had, uh, he was an avid coin collector and had uh, amassed a pretty large collection that was missing. Apparently, Patrick was also married, but his PTSD was so severe that he lived separately from his wife. 
So just so I understand, because when I was reading in the news report, it said that he was married. So it sounds like from what you're saying that... Yeah, he was. He was living separately from his wife. And I met his wife because she called. And you know, I didn't know he had a wife. And she just, who had been married to him, but she said his PTSD was so bad they couldn't live together. But they still had joint checking accounts. And he sent her money every month. And they were together on holidays and things like that. So it was kind of an odd situation. Patrick's wife would later tell investigators that she'd asked him why he didn't put his coins in a safety deposit box at a bank. And he replied, quote, Well, if they come here, they are my enemies. Adding, I will snap. They can kill me first before they can get my coins. Everyone in the building knew that Patrick was passionate about his coin collection, something he loved talking with people about. Residents would describe the collection to the detectives that it was rare and valuable. A neighbor shared that Patrick kept part of his collection in his leather briefcase. The first clue to follow was the stolen coins and the leather briefcase that they'd been in. That was the first thing we zeroed in on. I was trying to see if anybody was trying to pawn uh, coins or uh, uncut currency sheets. And that's what took us, which was, took us down a couple of rabbit holes because we did find people that were pawning coins and uncut sheets, but they weren't the same things that were missing. And, and so the, our first impression because this is only a few blocks off of Aurora Avenue. And I've actually been to this facility before on suspicious death cases. And, and the manager at that time told me that these people from Aurora come over and try to take advantage of these older people living there. And the building was a lockout, but they didn't lock the front door. So people could come and go 24 hours a day. And that was my impression. It was somebody off of Aurora Avenue doing this. Uh, so that's where we zeroed in at first. And we put out a lot of bulletins and actually pulled in a couple people um, that were suspicious and uh, got them, once, once we determined that they were not not involved in this murder, we had, during the course of what we were doing, we had them kind of having committed other crimes, so we kind of held that over their heads and said, you, you're going to be our informants and you're going to talk on the street and find out what happened in this case and you're going to get back to us. And they actually did get back to us. And said, I'm not hearing anything. Nobody seems to know anything about this, which I thought was odd. But they, you know, I, and even though these people are kind of scammers, I, I believe they were telling the truth. They obviously yeah. had incentive to at this point because you did have something over their heads, and and yeah, it I would charge them with those crimes if they don't if they don't cooperate. So <laughs> they did. And not only that, one of them had actually met the victim. He said, I, I showed him a picture. He's like, I know that guy. I go to Burger King. He always buys me coffee. He tells me I need to join the military and straighten my life out. He's a nice guy. You know, and he almost cheered up. So I thought, yeah, this guy doesn't have to do with this. And he, would, and he also had that incentive to find out who did. Roughly a week after the murder, they got a tip that caught their attention. They began looking into a woman who had lived at the Four Freedoms but had recently moved out. This woman had been a friend of Patrick Fleming, and she'd shared that she'd been scammed by a palm reader. This woman was Sylvia Sutton, and she had a very interesting story to tell about Lady Monica and her obsession with Patrick's coin collection. I think we were investigating it probably a week. We followed this kind of convoluted trail of a woman who's a fortune teller named Lady, uh, Lady Monica, and we discovered this woman, retired school teacher. So this woman had been scammed out of about a million and a half dollars by this lady Monica and realized that at some point she'd been, as it ends up, she'd been drugged by this woman. Sylvia Sutton, now penniless, was no longer under the control of Lady Monica. And around the same time of Patrick's murder, she had contacted the Seattle Police Department and spoke with Detective Pamela St. John, who had told her that she'd been taken advantage of by a palm reader called Lady Monica that her entire life savings, more than $1.5 million, had been stolen from her. Detective St. John asked Sylvia to provide bank statements, which she did. And so the detective opened a financial fraud investigation into a woman that they knew only as Lady Monica. And then we found out that she'd actually filed a police report. So the, the elder exploitation unit in the police department had just went going down homicide. So we went down to talk to the detective there and got the information. She said she'd been able, unable to, to identify Lady Monica. So we interviewed this woman, Sylvia was her name. And while we were interviewing, we said, how do you get a hold of her if you need her? She goes, well, I have a phone number, which apparently she didn't tell the other detective. So we took that phone number and we ran it. It came back to a man's name, but it also came back associated with Brendan Nicholas. So that was the first time we heard about Brendan Nicholas. The cell phone number associated with Brendan Nicholas was a huge clue. 
Cloyd ran her name and discovered that law enforcement in Kirkland, a city close to Seattle, had been investigating Brenda Nicholas and a woman named Gilda Ramirez for theft. In fact, Kirkland police had executed a search warrant on an apartment that was associated with Brenda and Gilda. Both were at the apartment when officers arrived with that search warrant, and they weren't alone. There was someone else there, too, that day, a man named Charles Youngbluth. As Cloyd reviewed the evidence log from that search warrant, one item caught his attention. So when we ran the name Brenda Nicholas in a uh, database that we have, the Denethal Police Department because we found out that, I think it was the uh, Kirkland Police Department had done an investigation on a scam that she'd done, and that they'd served a, a search warrant on an apartment up in Linwood. And we were looking through all the things they took in the search warrant. It was on our database, and one of them was a brown leather briefcase with papers inside under the, with the name Patrick Fleming, which was our victim. So now we knew we had the right people. The discovery of Patrick Fleming's leather briefcase was a huge break in the case, but so was a report from the crime lab. Blood samples recovered at the crime scene weren't just all from Patrick. There was blood that belonged to an unknown male who wasn't in CODIS. In the meantime, we had done the lab work and stuff, and there, were, there was blood. There was blood on a folding chair in the room. Uh, it was one of those padded card table chairs, and there was a blood smear on the, the backrest, and then some blood drippings like going toward the door. So we had those all tested and found that they did not belong belonged to Patrick Fleming, that they were to another unknown male. So we thought, who could this unknown, unknown male be? Priority number one, according to Cloyd, was to find out who the men were in Brenda's life. They also needed to better understand how a woman with a criminal history in financial crimes had become involved in a murder. So we started looking into all the males in her life. Well, she she was a uh, Roma woman, and she had a husband. Now, I don't know if it was a legal husband, but it named uh, Archie. And he had an extensive criminal history, too, so we thought it could have been him. Before... When we, when we ran her name and got the information, we also found out she was on active uh, probation in Seattle. So we called her probation officer, who was at an office down by Safeco Field, and, and asked him about her. And he goes, well, yeah, she's actually coming in the office like day after tomorrow. I said, great. So we went, we had three or four cold cars, which are cars, not unmarked police cars, but cars that look like every other car. And we sat in the parking lot and we waited until she showed up. And we saw her drive in and we saw Archie driving the car. She walked into the probation officer's office for a while and a half hour later she came out and left and we followed her with with our three cars, you know, playing tag team all the way up to the north. And she didn't get on the freeway, she took surface streets all the way and they ended up going to a, uh, what we saw, probably uh, a, uh, palm shop up there off a stone way. So, and it, I realized they went in and that's where she was actually living. Even though it was a commercial thing, they were living in this palm reading shop. Cloyd got to work putting together an elaborate undercover operation in front of Brenda's palm reading shop. Detectives posed as utility workers, pretending to be fixing the telephone poles outside the building. But what they were really doing was attaching cameras so they could record all the comings and goings of the business. They had that unknown male DNA. They were hoping to match it to one of Brenda's known associates. They had their sights on her partner, Archie. They had to get his DNA. We knew that he went outside on this little walkway in the alley and he would smoke a cigarette several times a day and throw the cigarette butt down. So we decided that we would watch him and collect the cigarette butt. So first we had a guy go out there wearing like a utility uniform with a sweeper and a, and a death bin and swept up all the cigarette butts from there. And then he walked away. And then a while later, Archie Martin came out and we zoomed the uh, camera in on him and he smoked the cigarette and he threw it down and we zoomed the camera and recorded on that cigarette butt until that same detective, undercover detective, came up and picked up that cigarette butt, put it in a little and left and took it back. So we sent that to the crime lab, and a couple days later they called us and said, that's not the guy that left the blood to scene. Back to ground zero on who the male person was. They had the DNA of the killer, and they needed to find a match for who it was. Okay, so again, we're trying to figure out who could the male be, and we're looking at all the males in our life, and we decided we had enough to arrest her on a the scam of Sylvia that was being investigated in the elder exploitation area. So we said, let's just go out and arrest them for that and start interviewing the people there. So they, we did. We sent the few, uh, U.S. Marshals Felony Task Force for us to go pick these people up. And, and this was after you'd been watching them? Yeah, that this is have, after that. This is this, after Archie was eliminated. Okay. <laughs> this must have taken a bunch of restraint, though, on your part. To just camp out in front and yeah. observe, well, you knowing know, that this could be a murderer in there. Yeah, well, that's 
that's all I do is murder. So, <laughs> so you know this yeah. is the this, way. The thing is, yeah, murder murder investigations are not a sprint; they're a marathon, and it's a regular step at a time to get to the end. You can rush to the end, but you'll screw it all up and lose. So, but I think a lot of people do, though. <laughs> they right? do. They Only get, they get people do. so excited yeah. about. Okay, you've got this suspect. Right. It sounds like it's a really good. Let's just go pick her up. Right. But you methodically were yeah. like, "Hey, let's let's see what we can get." Yeah, you have Which, to wait. You, well, first of all, what you do is is you determine who your suspects probably are, mm-hmm. and then you look in that group and say, "Who's the weakest link in that chain?" And you go get that person because mm-hmm. they're the most likely to to roll. And then you work your way up the food chain until you get to the main actor. That's the way you do it. So at this point, Brenda is the main actor. So, yeah, we're not going after her right away. Although we did want to see what she had to say. So we brought her in, and what was that like? Well, first of all, it was surprising because she's she has a real squeaky voice, real high pitched squeaky voice. And uh, Pam St. John, who was a detective in Elder Exploitation, went in to interview her, and we just watched through the class. Well, now, what was the strategy behind that? Just to see what she would say. We were going to get her. We weren't going to get her for this case yet. But we wanted to build up. We were more interested in the other people that got brought in. We knew she was a suspect, but we weren't ready. We're, our ducks were not in a row oh, to go okay. after her. Okay. So we, you know, we have to wait. But we can put her in jail on another charge and know she won't hurt anybody else while we have another charge, this okay. this property crime to charge her with. Okay, you know? okay. So we had her put it. We, she asked for a lawyer right away. So they booked her into jail. She was, she was, as ended up, she was the mastermind behind this whole thing. And she was a... A dominant personality, which surprised me with her voice because I'd never heard it. Because you'd think she'd have a normal voice being the dominant one. Yeah. But it was really Minnie Mouse-like, you know, really high and squeaky. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I just, well, I just kind of observed her. I knew she was, pro- I knew she was involved in the murder mm-hmm. after they found uh, Patrick's briefcase in her house, in her bedroom closet, you know. <laughs> so I knew she was involved in the murder. Um, I didn't know at that point that she was the mastermind of all this, you know. So I, I just kind of saw what she was like and went with that and waited until uh, we worked out, like I said, work our way up the food chain. Getting their ducks in a row, Cloyd knew it was time to check in with Gilda Ramirez and Charles Youngbluff, the two people identified in Brenda's life as the weak links. Cloyd brought Charles into an interview room, and his gut was telling him there was no way that he would be capable of murdering Patrick Fleming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this can't be our guy. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, well, let's go talk to him anyway, because he's a weak link. Let's go talk yeah, to him. Yeah. So we went in there and started talking to him and, you know, about things. And we kind of, you know, you ever been to Four Freedoms House? He goes, oh, I've driven Brenda there before, but I've never been inside. And, oh, um, you know, this guy showed me a picture of Patrick Fleming in life. No, I've never seen him. And then it's, we started working our way and kind of, it's kind of a tag team thing, kind of cornering him in our interrogation, which lasted a couple of hours. To finally say, you know, he's missing a lot of coins and uncut currency. Have you ever seen that stuff around? Then he says, oh, Brenda had some coins and stuff, and she was trying to sell them. And if, you saw them? And he goes, yeah, I saw them. So then he goes, uh, we go, we have pictures of this stuff, at least the type of stuff that's missing. And we show him each picture. He goes, yeah, I've seen that, something like this. We have initial it. Something else, no, I've never seen that. Put that aside. And we did that for everything. And then we're about ready to go, I go Charles, you mind if I swab your cheek? Oh, no, that's okay. So I take a DNA, a buckle swab out of his cheek, and I send that in. After taking the DNA swab, Cloyd cut Charles loose. There was nothing to hold him on. And he didn't think this guy could be capable of such a brutal crime as the murder of Patrick Fleming. So with Brenda locked away in jail, they went back to the drawing board to try to find a match for that unknown male DNA, which had been found at the murder scene. As it would turn out, just a couple of days later, they would find a match. Remember that DNA swab that Cloyd had taken from Charles before letting him go? So the other male was somebody else. So I'm trying to figure out who it could be. But I get the phone call from the crime lab that says that Charles is your guy. That's his DNA we found at the scene. And I'm like, holy shit. So, which shocked the hell out of me. He's like a whiny little guy and he's really dumpy and he's just... He just didn't give you the impression no. that he'd be capable of nearly yeah. helping to decapitate right. yeah, he didn't see stab. He was just, he was so whiny and he's like a just a little rat. So, so we just released this yeah, guy. Yeah, well, yeah. But I, I, so I, what I did is I put a bullet out right away. My partner at the time had to have shoulder, sur- shoulder surgery, so I was on my own. I put a bullet out statewide. I'm looking for this guy, probable cause to arrest him for murder. 
10 minutes, I get two phone calls. One from a Seattle police officer. He says, I live on that street. I've seen that guy on my street, but I don't know where he is. And then from Snohomish County Sheriff's, they go, do you want us to go get this guy? And I said, yeah, go get him. I said, but don't tell me anything about the murder. Okay. And then they, awesome. and they, and they and then about 15 minutes later, I get I call we got him. We're bringing him in. More Murder Chronicles after the break. DNA evidence led to the arrest of Charles Youngbluff on August 16, 2012, by the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office on first-degree murder charges. Remember, Brenda was already in jail on another charge, unrelated to Patrick's murder, which is why they had to get the story from Charles. They had to get a confession. And I put him back in the same interview room. And uh... Do you find that criminals are just like sometimes so, I mean... If you thought that you killed, I mean, if you knew, yeah. he knows he's killed someone. Yeah. And he knows and that we're had, onto him, onto, onto his group anyway. Yeah, yeah so if you get released, I mean, wouldn't you want to skedaddle out of there, yeah, well, right? Charles wasn't the brightest bulb on the porch, right? Okay, so I guess not. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was, first of all, he was a, I, I, I use this for him. I said, you're a little league player in a major league game. Right, because you have no idea. You've never done anything before, and now you went right to the majors, and you can't handle the inside fastball. That's what I told him. And what did he say? Yeah. Did he agree? You know, you know he was just dopey. You know, at first, if I started out the interview with him a second time, I just want to go over some other things that we talked about, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, yeah. And he goes, you said you'd never been there. No, I've never been there. And then but some of the things he told me were different to what he told me before. That's because he lied before, and he didn't remember what he said this time. <laughs> but why would he give her up? Like say, oh yeah, I think I saw her. You know, she had some coins, and I think you know that you had yeah. he signed off. Why maybe, would he? Maybe do he that? felt trapped, or again, he's just stupid. He was just stupid. He right? just gave you something, something enough to be able to, to get, get you off to get yeah. him out of there. Right. Okay. Yeah, okay. get him out of there. So it got down to that, and I said, and then at some point I said, you ever heard? Remember when O.J. Simpson? Remember when he stabbed those people and his hand slipped and he cut himself? That's so why I said to Charles. He goes, you heard about it? Yeah. You think that ever really happens? He goes, I don't know. I go, yes, you do, Charles, because it happened to you. What? You cut yourself, Charles, and we got your blood. And then I pulled out the lab report, and I said, look at this. And I read him the lab report. And the last line of the lab report is that the, 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 uh, the probability of finding someone with a matching DNA in the pop- in general population was war- one in 54 quintillion. So I said, quintillion. That's a really big number. <laughs> Actually, what I said, that's a big-ass number. Yeah. And I wrote it out, 54 and 18 zeros. Yeah. And I went, how many people do you think live on the planet right now? Uh, between 6 and 7 billion. So we'll take this. And then you got to remember, every every zero is a thousand times the previous, every three zeros is a thousand times the previous three zeros. How many people do you think have ever lived on the planet in the history of the world? Maybe one more zero. <laughs> I said, and, I, and then I said, you probably can't use this for your podcast. I said, there's a legal term for the situation you find yourself in today, Charles. And he says, there is. I go, yeah, you're fucked. <laughs> Cloyd says that in many cases, an interviewer knows it's a true confession when details match up with the crime. But also, when it comes to murder, the truth is, it's not always physically easy to kill someone. Oh, then at first you go, well, I don't know, maybe I should get a lawyer, maybe I should do that. You want a lawyer? I'll get your phone. I don't know. You're telling me I hurt somebody. I said, yeah, there's no issue. Charles, you're done. You're going away. The only issue, you're going to take the fall for this? Because you're the patsy. They set you up, Charles. You're the patsy. And he started hemming and hawing. I don't know what I can tell you. I don't know. And I said, he, he goes, maybe I'll just take it for myself. I go, why would you do that? I said, what, do you love this girl or something? And he goes, I do have feelings for her. I'm oh, my God. <laughs> so we go through this whole thing. And finally, I said, Charles, you're done. So, and these people set you up. You got to do it. And he goes, what do you want to know? I said, I want to know the truth. And he pulled a picture of Brenda and a picture of uh, Gilda over. And he goes, there you go. That was them. And I go, okay, what about them? And he, well, and then he went to the whole thing. He said that Brent, he would drive them around. And Sylvia lived for a time at the Four Freedoms House because they put her there at the same place. And then she met Patrick. And Patrick would show her the coins and stuff. And then Brenda would come over and say, niece. So then we went over to, he said she went over and introduced her to Patrick and she saw those coins and stuff. And then Brenda, in Charles' presence, said to, to Sylvia, you need to get to know that guy. You need to get pretty close to him. And then, then he heard her, he told us he heard her at her home talking to to uh, Archie saying, we need to, there's this guy that has these coins, I don't know how to get them. And he said, then they walked in the room and closed the door. And then she said, 
she took him aside and says, I, okay, we're going to go back to the Four Freedoms and we have to get this guy and kill him and take his coins. That's what she said. And I go, and you know, this guy had no criminal history. I said, you weren't alarmed by that? He goes, oh, I didn't think she was serious. I said, well, how many times did you talk about that? Oh, seven or eight times. Was anybody else over there when you were talking about it? Gilda was there a couple of times, and then her son, who was 15 years old, when they're talking about going to kill somebody and take his coins. Yeah. This doesn't seem like Brenda's M.O. Like, she seems like she's so super manipulative and preys on vulnerable people saying right. they have gray energy that's messed right, up yeah. and let me, like, you know, it's going to cost money. But it seems like a leap. Yeah, well, this, to, would, this wouldn't have worked with Patrick, the whole you have a gray aura thing, because he had to slam the door. But I mean, six, yeah. I mean, the coins are worth like 60000 60 grand, yeah. I mean, to her, it was I mean, chump change, right? Yeah, yeah like it's, exactly. not, it's not that much it's not that money. Much. And how do you get rid of them? Right. Like, right, you got to go pawn them somewhere. Right. There's a trail. Like, it just seems like well, a... Well, I know how she got rid of them. <laughs> but don't you think, like, when you're talking to, yeah. like, trying to get to know her psyche, like, why... This seems well, like a, a really... Not a good crime. No. Well, it wasn't. It was a big leap for her. But she might have been... She was supposedly desperate. She was completely out of money when they decided to finally do it. She was getting desperate. And she has some psychopathic personality traits, you know. And she just... It's all about her her gratification. And, you know, she's been scamming people her whole life. And who knows if she's ever done anything like this before. Probably not to this level. But it was just a jump, you know. She just went off the edge and made the big jump to kill somebody. But she was so casual when she talked to them about, we need to go steal, we just need to go steal that, that stuff. We need to go kill that guy and take his stuff. That, I mean, she was casual about it. Charles would say that Brenda had been desperate to steal Patrick's coin collection. She knew that there was no way that Patrick would fall for her palm-reading scam. She knew, as a well-trained predator of the vulnerable, that to get her hands on that collection would require a battle to the death. After cracking Charles who implicated Gilda, the next step in Cloyd's plan was to interview her the following day. At this point, Gilda has no idea that Charles has already confessed. I'm done with Charles, and he's implicated Gilda. So then I send her, let's go get Gilda. And so it was actually the next day, people went out for me and got Gilda and brought her in. And at first I sat her in the room and she said, I don't know anything about it, detective, I'm sorry. And then I said, well, hang on, just let me play something. And I started playing the recording of Charles's interview. Perfect. And she goes, turned off. Okay, I'll talk. <laughs> and she told the whole story. But she said, and Charles in his interview said, he was talking about, it was, well, he, there were some things he said that made me think, you know, you can tell a truthful confession to a false confession. Because things he said, I was stabbing him, but it wasn't easy to get the knife in. Because it's not in real life, right? People think it's a lot easier. We had to stab and stab and stab. And I was on one side of his neck and Brenda was on the other. And we were both stabbing, which is exactly how the wounds were. And that's how it was so deep. And then he said that Brenda didn't think he was stabbing enough, so she stabbed him, stabbed Charles, causing him to bleed, which sealed both their fates. <laughs> Why did they, I mean, you know, if you're watching like a TV show, right. it just takes a couple right. of stabbing. But not really in real life. It's a lot harder. And so, and, and so Charles, when he was describing the murder, said, we got him on the ground, and I don't know where Gilda went. She just disappeared, right? So Gilda said, I went in there and, I, you know, told me the whole story and I just couldn't do it. So I ran into the bathroom and locked, but I could see them stabbing him on the floor and I just was getting sick. And I, you know, because she was not, you know, she's like an architect at one point, right? <laughs> Working, making lots of money and she just, and, and, she, and I, I just couldn't go through with it. Gilda would tell Cloyd that after the murder of Patrick Fleming, they fled the apartment with the coins. And then she told me all about this stuff and told me that after the, you know, that they went to a motel in Kirkland and that, uh, and... And then got all, nobody got anything except Brenda. She kept everything. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, she said about a week later, Archie, Brenda's husband, took me and said, we're going to get rid of stuff. And he took me to the, we got all the clothes and all the, and the knives and the metals that were taken. And we took him down to this place behind Fred Meyer and Ballard on the, on the waterway, which of course is the ship canal. And we burned the clothes in a burn belt and then he threw the knives and metals out there. A couple of weeks later, she and her attorney, and I and my partner went out 
and she showed me this spot. So we had a harbor patrol unit come down there, and they dropped the anchor to dive in. And when it hit, hit the anchor dropped, it actually landed on one of the knives and stuck it up at a 45-degree angle. So it was a year after the crime, we recovered three knives and a honing rod that they'd thrown into the thing. We never found the medals, but uh, but they could have been swept away because the ribbon. You're talking about, oh, his medals, his, his bronze, bronze star, star and, and two, two purple, purple hearts. hearts. Yeah, they threw those in the ship canal, too. Why did they take those? Probably they thought they were valuable, but they're, you, know, you can't really pawn a Medals like that, you well, can't find and, you know, and well, the the coins she took to West Seattle coin, and you know, you don't have to show ID or anything at the coin shop, and but don't they have video cameras? No, they thought, but well, yeah, but the problem is, by the time we found out, it was a couple months later, and they'd already cycled through, and so so they did get money for the coins. They got money for the coins, probably about half of what they're worth, right? So probably about even even thirty thousand, maybe thirty thousand bucks, yeah. Cloyd never did get the opportunity to interview Brenda, but because they had so much evidence against her, it didn't really matter. Well, she lawyered up, but we had plenty to charge her. And, we, they, mm-hmm. and she was charged with first-degree murder, first-degree robbery, and I forgot what else. Anyway, and so and then Charles agreed to testify for the state, and he took a plea to first- or second-degree murder. He got 25 years. Kilda agreed to testify for the state. They charged her with theft because she didn't have anything to do with the actual murder. And she got eight years in prison, and she should be out by now. And so they each testified against him. During the time they were in jail, they, uh, she spoke, Brenda spoke with Archie on the phone a lot, and they would speak in Roma, which is an unwritten language, right? There's no, and there are no official interpreters for Roma. And I couldn't, I, I didn't want to use the, my people I was in the Roma community because, you know, they could say I have a bias or something. But the prosecutor was actually able to find a police officer in Southern California who grew up in the Roma community and could speak Roma. <clears throat> and they had him listen to and interpret what they were saying. And they were saying things like, uh, you got to be careful. That guy's, don't talk about this. They're talking about the murder. And, and Archie says, don't talk about this because it, this is being recorded. She goes, oh, they'll never find an interpreter that speaks Roma. And they're talking about this, you know, the other two. And they didn't care and how they're going to get out of this. And of course, those were all that, that he came up and the police officer from California came up and testified in the trial. And it was about a couple week trial. And in the end, she was convicted and she was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Did she ever admit to anything? Only at her sentencing. She she didn't admit to the murder necessarily, but she her she said she was from the time she was born. She was taught to be a criminal and a, and a thief. And that's all she knows. And did you believe that? No, I believe she really was. I don't think she has any remorse. No. Her remorse is that she was caught. She has remorse for herself. She has no remorse for the victim. But yeah, she was remorseful that she was going, it was a realization was coming down. She's going to prison for much of the rest of her life. And I think, you know, of course, that's hard for anybody to do. But Mm -hmm. yeah. So So that was the most admission that anybody got. That was the most, yeah. And it was, yeah, her attorney actually said it for her. She didn't say it herself. And (laughs) she didn't say anything. No. Brenda Nicholas's defense attorney would blame her Romani upbringing for her crimes, saying she was, quote, a product of her environment, that she was raised to steal. Brenda's attorney claimed that she was a victim of domestic violence and had never learned to read and that she'd sent most of the stolen money to her family members to pay her mother-in-law's medical bills. If you serve a long time as a prosecutor, you become aware of certain families uh, where it's generational crime. And those families aren't limited to any one ethnic or racial group. It's just a problem within the family. And in some cases, it's a serious problem of serious crimes. And in other cases, it's more cavalier and what I would call just mischief makers that become known to local law enforcement. That's Mark Lindquist. Today, Mark Lindquist represents victims and their families in cases of wrongful death or injury, specifically plane crashes, government negligence, including officer-involved shootings, sex abuse, and other incidents or accidents causing injury. But before going into private practice, Mark was a former elected district attorney in Pierce County, where he was committed to justice and accountability. Mark has successfully litigated some of the most high-profile civil and criminal cases in Washington state. So I worked in the Pierce County Prosecutor's Office for almost 23 years. Uh, I started out as an intern, then I was a deputy prosecutor, trial team chief, chief criminal deputy, uh, and eventually elected where I served for almost a decade. In Pierce County, uh, 
if you serve there long enough, you get to know some of the local families. And we had more than a few local families that were known for generational crime. And they were not limited to any particular racial or ethnic group. Uh, it was just something, uh, it was the family business. Crime was the family business. In this particular case with Brenda Nicholas, when she was being sentenced, she basically threw her culture under the bus saying, I'm the reason why I murdered this person was because I was born and raised to steal and con. And, you know, I was a victim of domestic violence. And it sounds like this is just something that, you know, she's completely using this as an excuse to justify what she did. But it does perpetuate this stereotype. When people are being sentenced to prison for their crimes, it's amazing this large bag of excuses they can reach into. And they tend to pull out the same excuses over and over. And I don't buy it. Uh, judges don't buy it. People are accountable for their behavior. They're responsible for what they do. I mean, I recall, for example, at some point, Ted Bundy decided he was going to blame pornography uh, for his crimes. And I don't think anybody bought that. Same thing I would say here. Uh, you're an individual, you make your own choices, and you can't blame the family or the background or any other cliche for that. In the podcast, we always look and try to understand why do people do what they do? And there's definitely the early childhood trauma. And when you're in a family, it sounds like like this, where she was it's not an excuse. It's like you don't condone it, but you understand it. In your experience with children who then grow up to teens and then adults and they're, it's a, it's a vicious cycle. When you yeah. come from this type of crime family and it's so ingrained. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald said that the sign of a superior mind was the ability to hold contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. And if you work in the criminal justice system, uh, you have to expand your mind to that point uh, because you see contradictory things that are both true. Uh, for example, uh, people are absolutely responsible for their own behavior, uh, but it's also true that a lot of people get caught up in this cycle. And certainly your background, how you're raised has a major influence on what becomes of you. We see people who get caught up in it. But, you know, we also see people who break out of that cycle. The judge would say that Ms. Nicholas was a danger to society before handing down the stiffest sentence allowed. More than 34 years for the first-degree murder of Patrick Fleming, adding, quote, the heartlessness, the cold-bloodedness, and the inhumanity of Patrick Fleming's murder was both striking and disturbing. The judge added, the challenges Nicholas may have faced in her life did nothing to mitigate her crimes. Mark Lindquist says the power to manipulate someone through gray energy or a curse is a powerful tool based on an individual's belief system. In my many years as a prosecutor, it was not unusual for a defendant on his or her way to prison to threaten a prosecutor or sometimes even their own attorney. But I can only remember once in my entire career did someone actually cast a curse on one of our deputy prosecutors. Uh, and I'm happy to say as we sit here, uh, the curse has apparently not hit him because he went from our office to being a judge and all is well in his life. For us, it's kind of just like, okay, another another day at the office or for you. But, you know, when people believe that, I mean, that's pretty powerful. And that was with this case, she was a palm reader and she was able to bilk people, at least two people of over a million dollars with this. You've got dark energy. You know, I can heal you. And it's so both of these people were completely vulnerable in their lives when they got in her clutches. I don't know if she actually believed what she was selling, but she was certainly effective at it. To the extent that voodoo or curses or anything of that sort are ever effective, it's because the target believes that it's effective and maybe the target actually makes it effective. Uh, but in Phil Sorensen's case, Phil was the chief criminal deputy. Uh, he not only didn't believe it, he thought it was hilarious. And that may have been his immunity, his sense of humor about the curse. According to PewResearch.org, 
16% of Americans believe in the evil eye or that certain people can cast curses or spells that cause bad things to happen to someone. Although the overwhelming number of Americans describe themselves as Christians, belief in non-Christian mystical experiences is widespread, according to a Pew Forum survey. Nearly three in 10 Americans say they have felt in touch with someone who has already died. Almost one in five say they have seen or been in the presence of ghosts and 15% have consulted a fortune teller or a psychic. I want to end this episode with some advice from Cloyd. If you are in any way vulnerable and searching for answers, take care with who you let into your life. So it's a trap. It is a trap. It's yeah. a trap. Yeah. yeah, they put out their bait and wait for the wait for the fish to nibble, right? That's what they the do. The vulnerable people right. to come. To come in, right. Okay. Don't go to those places and looking for answers and certainly don't go to them if you're really down and really want to know your fortune because all you'll find is misfortune they're predators and they can sense that it's like in the you know in the wild animals can sense the weak or vulnerable and i think it's kind of innate in these people because first of all they have no human empathy at all they don't care to you your life is as is important to them as a a, a, a soda can they threw in the garbage right it doesn't matter it's all about me the person it's all it's my gratification that matters yours doesn't and and so that's what they and they they seek these people out and they see them like uh she just picked gilda off the street just a look and approached her right mm -hmm. and when she's of course when you're at these street fairs and these people are coming into your palm reading tent right you know you can see who the real what's your story oh i lost something you know they're all sad and so they pick out their marks right and that's mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the way it is it's kind of a con man is the same way but these are con people that, and she was a con person but she got in to be a, a murdering con person if you enjoyed this episode please rate and review the murder chronicles a five-star review would be awesome it really helps and remember to check out our bonus content after each episode my producer brandon morgan and i discuss the case in more detail and as always thanks for listening Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.